Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Welcome, friends, to the Ocean Protect podcast. This episode features part two of four of recorded audio from the inaugural Ocean Plastic Action Forum at Bondi Beach, held on 15th of March 2023 as part of the Volvo Ocean Lovers Festival. Now, this episode features the Exploring Current Action session, where you'll hear discussions and insights from current actions being undertaken to reduce ocean plastic pollution, including at source, recycling treatment, and cleanup initiatives. So, Professor Veena Sahajwala from the University of New South Wales, she kicks off proceedings with a short presentation, and then she's joined by Anissa Lawrence from Ghost Nest Australia, Shannon Mead from No More Butts, Lottie DL from Banish, Hayley Tate from Tangaroo Blue, James Dorney from Tom Clean Away, and Mayor Paula Masalos from Waverley Council for an interactive panel discussion and audience Q&A. Boom, boom, shake the room. To kick things off, we've got Professor Veena Sahajwala, who is an expert on recycling and is the director of the Centre for Sustainable Materials Research and Technology, the Smart Centre, basically, at the University of New South Wales. And last year, added New South Wales Australian of the Year to her very long list of honours and awards. So please, Veena. Thank you very much, Brad, for that uh, warm welcome. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for being so passionate. It's the one thing that uh, uh, we have no shortage of is this incredibly collective group of all of us who are so passionate about the work we do and caring for our planet and caring for our country. And I think, of course, as we hear, caring for animals, people, and I think sometimes all of these things can be really heartbreaking because I think if you stop and reflect that as humans, when we pause and think about how many times in history we've had examples of products that have been made, which are meant to be these incredibly amazing products and therefore, wow, aren't we amazing? And let's use examples of things like asbestos. And I think it is heartbreaking because I think, you know, you, you have to learn from history a little bit here. So if you sort of go back and have a look at what we have learned from past and let's kind of pause, reflect and look at the future and we start to kind of examine our collective responsibilities because let's face it, like we said, we're all passionate about it. Whether we're working in research and government and NGOs, industries, I think we all are passionate. We all want to do the right thing. So I think what today is really all about, which I guess to me gives me so much hope for the future is we're willing to come together. And thank you so much, Anita and Sharon and everybody 
for and Brad for for really kind of bringing us all in the room so we can talk about it. And I guess part of the reason why we have to bring science, engineering, technology and the impact on our animals, our oceans, our human beings, all of us around everywhere on this planet. So it is important that we stop and we reflect that whatever solutions we do develop as we look to the future, we have to make it so that it is affordable, accessible and equitable. I think to me, that's also going to be important to recognize that we care for all human beings on this planet. You know, we simply can't afford to be able to then say, well, okay, so we've cleaned up our stuff here. We've collected it. Now we're going to send it off to some other country somewhere else in the world to worry about. And and Graham from Sea Shepherd, thank you for kind of making all these points about these simple sort of sachets and all of that. Because of course, the complexity with multi-layered packaging is again in its own right a challenge from point of view of so many issues of how do you deal with things that have got laminated polymers and metal and all of that. And again, you can sort of sit there and go, let's recycle it. But of course, then we've had this discussion on what can be recycled, remanufactured, all of those other challenges, which I'm sure we'll talk about on the on our panel. But I think the question here, of course, remains is can we learn from what we have seen are some of the harmful effects that materials have caused on human beings and the recent, of course, conversation on silicosis that has been happening. And I know, again, one can say, well, what's that got to do with plastics? We're here talking about plastics today, isn't it? So why are we talking about asbestos and silicosis and all of that? The reason why I make that point is fundamentally where it comes from is the nature of materials at that absolute molecular level. So when we say in silicosis, you take that particular example, when we talk about silica as a material, a ceramic material that, of course, has got crystalline structure in it. Now, I know I'm kind of nerding all about science and and crystallinity and all of that, but I guess this is the reason why we're talking the impact of science and understanding fundamentally what the scientific basis is to move forward so we make the right decisions. And of course, when we are talking about the right call that industries, governments, all of us can make, at least we need to come from a strong foundation of science and technology. And this is where, of course, I use examples of these materials that have been around and talked about recently in the media around silicosis, because we're saying fundamentally, if crystalline silica is a problem, of course, How are you going to stop that by having an impact on human health? So much in the same way, what we are saying is we need to understand fundamentally every bit of compound molecule element in what form that it presents itself in. So come back to that multi-layer packaging, for instance, and I just want to use that example. So inspired by the work, fabulous work that C. Shepard does and everything you've said there, Graham. So I think what we have to then say, okay, well, is there something wrong with that aluminium or that polymer that's present in that multi-layer packaging. You might say, well, of course not. Aluminium is such a useful material. But yet, of course, when we look at multi-layer packaging, you've got metallized packaging where you've got aluminium and a polymer attached together in many of these food packaging um, systems and solutions. How do you even start to talk about recycling? You know, you, you have to recognize that traditional recycling doesn't work in a system like that. So first and foremost, we've got to recognize that There are innovations that will have to be deployed alongside this kind of material coming into our system. 
So yes, it's nice to be able to do a nice single straightforward monomaterial like a PET that can then be collected and put back into recycling system. But what do you do when you have got these kinds of multi-layer products? So part of the reason why we have to challenge the way we collect and the way we manufacture and the way we put it back into our ecosystem is recognizing that quality of feedstock that comes in is as important. So when we are right at the source, we need to recognize that that quality, so in this case, we're talking about the presence of aluminum, and it's not just in these kinds of food packaging, as we know, in so many other consumer packaging products from food to medical and so on contains multi-layers. You've got that aluminum layer. So what if you could actually have a manufacturing system that says, no, you know what, I'm going to take this one because this is rich in aluminum and I'm going to now extract that aluminum. Why does it matter in a holistic sense? Aluminum is extremely energy intensive to produce. The fact that we've already made all those aluminum atoms in the first place and have liberated that from ores, that aluminum now can be put back into remanufacturing. So you've got to think in a holistic manner and say that all of these materials, and yes, plastics is part of that ecosystem of metals, ceramics, and of course, polymers, so that we come right back and question, is this material fit for purpose? Do we have recycling and manufacturing technologies that are fit for purpose? And at what scale? I mean, we need to be able to constantly challenge that. At what scale? At some point in time, we've got to recognize that not everything should be dictated by economies of scale, but we've got to start to talk about economies of purpose. And I think this is where the difference starts to come in when we challenge the fact that we are causing a lot of harm to our environment and to a lot of organisms. And of course, therefore, if we start to put a value on what it means for our planet and for our people, we're then going to say, no, the economies of purpose basically say this kind of plastic should not be used. End of story, because this is going to degrade. It's got a lot of additives in it. By the way, some of these ceramic materials, silica I mentioned, they are additives present in polymers as well, as you probably may well already know. Lots of fillers and, of course, different kinds of additives that are present in our polymers. So when the question came up earlier around nanoplastics and microplastics, all of that, remember, we are liberating a lot of these types of compounds into our environment. So it's not just about the polymer, it's the additives that are present in these polymeric materials. So understanding back to that scientific question at the material science level, at the molecular structure level, we need to be able to recognize that the way polymers are made with all the additives and fillers and all of that to make it all these functional properties, we've got to ask this question fundamentally. We're designing all these products but again, for what purpose? If we don't think about it in a holistic, circular way, then we are kidding ourselves. You know, we're sort of saying that we're so spoiled. We need to be able to have this every little sachet or this little kind of single-use polymer because life just has to be so convenient. So I guess part of this thing is first and foremost, recognizing that there are functional polymers that do a great job. Yes, they are there in our electronic devices. You know what? We're using it. They're there in our cars. And yes, cars are made somewhere in the world, across the world, and they come here. Does that mean tires as a polymer is bad? We've heard about, you know, microparticles and so on from tire wear and tear. Does that mean that a lot of those important polymers, the ABSs and polycarbs and so on, are bad? No, of course not. The question, of course, therefore, is in, in this entire ecosystem, 
when some things are recognized that they have value, they can be remanufactured correctly in a controlled manner, then of course, you can set up systems to be able to achieve the kinds of outcomes that we all want. We don't want harm to our people and our planet. What we want is to be able to do this in a sensible way so that we all collaborate, come together, collect the feedstock materials. So back to that point, it is a resource if you deal with it properly. All kinds of scrap metals are not thrown around in the ecosystem. Scrap metals, including aluminium, steel, and the list goes on and on. Look at what happens on your curbside collection days, right? One of the first things that gets picked up are those kinds of e-waste that contain copper. Why? Because copper is worth nearly $10,000 a ton. So the point I'm making there is that value in our feedstock materials is important. So imagine if we could value every bit of molecule and compound and atom, whether it is a metallic material, a ceramic or a polymer, all of these things get utilized in different ways. So when we talk about things like, for instance, all the futuristic technologies, electric vehicles, Let's talk about that. You might say, what's that got to do with plastic? Well, just look inside your car. How much polymer goes into making a car? You've got, of course, now in EVs, you're going to sort of now start to look at batteries and all of those important questions. Well, so again, holistically, we've got a whole smorgasbord of materials that are actually going to play a very important part in our ability to manufacture and make those products that we are talking about for the purposes of reducing our carbon footprint and getting to net zero. So when we think about closing that loop of materials and solutions, we need to recognize that a lot of these materials that will simply end up in landfill if we don't do the right thing or if we just kind of say that it's okay to just, you know, collect it and not worry about it, those materials will also release carbon pollution into the atmosphere. So all those greenhouse gas emissions. But if you come right back to the fundamentals, we need important materials and controlled materials that we can put back into our manufacturing systems so that we can actually produce all kinds of products, but to do it in a safe, sustainable way and in a respectful manner where ethical and sustainable practices work together. We can't do what we used to do before, which is, you know what, there are developing countries out there and we're just going to send away materials and for somebody else to worry about it. If we develop technologies that were affordable and that could then be deployed in different parts of the world, imagine what a difference it could make. So imagine if we could take those products that land up on our beaches and set up these micro businesses that allowed us to bring about transformation. We would not only clean up our environment, we would also create local jobs. But let's be very clear, that is built on the principle of science and technology and manufacturing all working together. And we can sort of say, well, that's all a nice bit of a dreamy thing. I think one of the young people asked the question earlier, you know, what are the solutions? What are the technologies for recycling? And it's no such thing as one size fits all. Here's one scale. Everything's on this mega scale and bang, we'll just set up shop here and we'll walk away. Of course not. Why should we expect all these new devices and all these new systems that are coming into play? Why should we expect that to suddenly be solved off the back of 
existing technologies for recycling. So if our devices and our products have evolved, and remember, we also have plastics in our medical systems. I mean, that's yet a whole nother big sort of question. So in all of this, what we are really talking about as we recognize that fundamentally we all need to collaborate and work together, whether it is recognizing our feedstock materials coming in and of course manufacturing. So some of the micro factory examples I wanted to share with you and particularly in this case, yes, we do set up micro factories at the Smart Center in partnership with our industry collaborators, small regional businesses were done in Kuramandra, doing one in Nowra and of course in Sydney as well that we're going to be looking to set up. The reason why I make these points about working with regional businesses, those SMEs, because we can imagine, you know, we've recently been engaging with India as well. So you can imagine how so many countries across the world could benefit from these kinds of micro factories. So one example of some of the solutions we've done in our micro factories, these kinds of plastic filaments that are made from 100% waste plastics, not all plastics lend themselves to this solution. So again, I want to make that point back to that molecular structure and how molecules transform during processing. So this filament that we have in our micro factories converted into all kinds of products that have already gone into our built environment. And can we bring them back into production over and over again? But it all comes back to quality, quality control, production, and achieving those engineering properties. This finished filament should perform equal to some of the standard ones that are available in the market. So the point in all of this is to bring together science, technology, engineering, and of course, at the core of all of this is human-centered solutions. Thank you very much. Thank you. What a superstar. <laughs> Thank you, Veena. We had Veena on our podcast recently and we said, I think Veena needs her own podcast series. <laughs> and thanks so much for that, uh, Veena. Look, I'm going to invite the uh, panelists for the second session, if I can, please. So I'll have to look them up myself. So I know there's Anissa Lawrence, who is the Managing Director of Ghost Nets Australia. Shannon Mead, Chief Butt Officer at No More Butts. Lottie DL, the founder of Banish and this year's New South Wales Young Australian of the Year, Lottie, and a great swimmer as well. Paula Masalos from the Mayor of Waverley Council and Heidi Tate from the CEO and founder of Tangaroo Blue Foundation. And obviously, Veena, I hopefully still got a seat. Uh, wow. I reckon you can do laps around this whole building and still have energy to burn. I might actually start with Anissa because we did talk about ghost nets briefly in, in the previous session. Some people might not even know what a ghost net is. So what is a ghost net? Why is it a problem? And what are you guys doing to help solve this issue? Yeah, thanks, Brad. So ghost nets are abandoned, lost and discarded fishing nets. So all over the world, we have commercial fisheries, we have recreational fisheries, we have artisanal fisheries. In many, many cases, those nets can become entangled, they can become lost. If we have illegal fishing and they get caught, they'll chop them and run. And what happens is there's new data out, which Denise will know better than I do, but there's something like 640,000 tonnes of this per year getting into our oceans. Northern Australia is a global hotspot for ghost gear. And it doesn't come from Australia. Only 10% or less than 10% is coming from the Australian fishing industry. Most of it comes from Asia by coming down in the currents. The issue with it is that it is made out of really heavy duty and hardcore plastics, different sorts of plastics and nylons that last for, it's designed to last for a long time, right? Because fishing nets are expensive. Fishermen don't want to have to keep buying them. 
They will float in the currents. They're also designed to fish. The whole purpose of a fishing net is to catch fish. And so they continue to catch that fish while they're floating in the current with nobody watching them. That fish will attract bigger predators, which attract bigger predators, which attract bigger predators. So you can end up with turtles, sharks, dugongs, you name it, as well as all sorts of other critters entangled in those nets. And then they'll wash up somewhere. They obviously can't breathe or or they can't get out and they die. So the issue is the impact that it has on our marine wildlife, but also from a Northern Australian point of view, the issue is also the level of microplastics that comes out of those nets because they're in harsh conditions with the sun and the wind and, and the solar, you know, UV and all that sort of stuff. And over time, they break down. And so what you'll find is when the rangers go to clean up, the indigenous rangers up in the Gulf of Carpentaria go to clean up those nets, they just crumble into white powder, which is microplastics. And we don't really know the scale of that issue. That's only just sort of something that's just starting to to come forward. But at a macro scale, they're really bad for wildlife. They're bad for economics, for the fishing industry. You know, they're just sort of bad all around. And what are you guys doing to actually solve? Yeah, so um, Ghost Nets Australia has been working for 18 years in Northern Australia to work with the rangers to help clean up the nets. We started out trying to clean up the nets. So the, the rangers have been doing that and they now do that on their own. We don't support them anymore in that in that process. We then transitioned to try and understand why we have an issue and we worked out where they come from. We've been working in the last probably six, seven years with our partners in Indonesia and other countries in Asia to try and understand why do we have so many nets and ghost gear washing into northern Australia in addition to the marine debris like Graham talked about. It's shocking the amount of rubbish as well, but I'll leave that. And so we now understand why fishermen lose nets, why we have this problem. And we've been working in the last couple of years with Vina and other on solutions for how do we dispose of these nets sustainably because there has not been a solution. I've been looking for 18 years for a solution to disposing of them sustainably and there's been none because they're so contaminated, not like normal plastic. It's really high value plastic but you can't recycle it because it's so contaminated and so degraded. So we've been working with Vina and others and we finally found a solution that potentially works, which is amazing. It's like the best thing that's ever happened. But we're also working with other countries and with the Australian government and, and through regional bodies to try and stop the nets coming to Australia. And that can be through setting up net collection systems in other countries, recycling systems, but also through regional agreements, regional collaboration. I think in the previous session, we talked about cigarette butts. Shannon, what are we doing about cigarette butts? We're, we're actually doing a fair bit. I, I just want to, if I can, just on the, the comment made about equity or uh, having an equitable approach towards plastic, having lived in, in Philippines and Indonesia for a while as well, some of the things that we may not realize or sort of stick out first off is why do they have those tiny little plastic sachets of shampoo? And it's not because they want to, it's because they can't afford to actually get a large bottle. So when we're creating westernized and developed market solutions, we also need to really consider how that actually can apply to them. And so if that is the way that it has to be designed for economic reasons, that's the first step. But then how can that product then be, I guess, redesigned so it can be recycled? So I think having that lens of equity is so important. We, Someone said before, we are so privileged to be here, not just here today, but having lived in some of these countries for five years, we actually, we forget, I guess, the true impact of that. Sorry, off topic, but thought it was relevant to highlight. 
So on cigarette butts, so, so cigarette butts, if we talk about water, we still estimate there's about seven and a half billion cigarette butts that enter the Australian waterways each year. Now, this is estimated off, a, I guess, a higher rate. It's really hard to quantify this. When you go and do collections and so on, you go, yeah, it's still the most littered item in most situations. So can we prove that there's 8.9 billion littered? Absolutely not. Nobody can. But is more than one billion too many billion? And the answer is, of course, yes, it is. So if we look at that seven and a half billion that make its way into the water, that accumulates up to 15 years because it's photodegradable, it's not biodegradable. And that will create all of those trillions of microplastics as they come out. So if we actually look over a 15 year period, if we look now at any one point in time, there could be over 10 and a half thousand tonnes of plastic cigarette butts in the water. That in itself is pretty incredible. Now it's, a, it's one of the truth bombs that Brad and I like to drop. Can we quantify it? No. What if it's only 5,000 tonnes of cigarette butts in the water? that's still too much. So I think that's what we need to look at. We also look at water quality and the lower estimate of one cigarette butt polluting water is 40 litres. I've read estimates up to 1,000 litres, but let's use 40 for the sake of science. If you actually look at that, it's 142 billion litres of water that's contaminated in Australia each year. So this is why we want to take action. So it's not just about unsightly and not about being able to see them on the beach and picking them up. So when we talk about action, the biggest action that we can take is actually further upstream. We are advocating for a ban of the plastic filter. The filter serves no purpose. It was introduced in the 50s to reduce the amount of tobacco leaf required, introduce the texture and the filtered flavours, menthol and so on. There is no need for that tobacco filter to be in there. So that is our first priority and you know, objective is to actually eradicate that at the source. But I think if that's going to take anywhere between three, five, seven, ten years, what can we do with this waste as resource for now? So we're actually launching a program in, in Melbourne, which is actually using mycelium, the root network of mushrooms, to actually digest the plastic. So we're collecting more than a million butts from the city of Melbourne and digesting them with mycelium to eradicate that. Can we then recreate a polystyrene type replacement product, which is an issue in itself, with the byproduct? We need to, of course, do the toxic analysis. What does a mass spectrometry look like when you're actually remediating this? Does it get rid of toxins and heavy metals? but it certainly digests the plastic. The other option someone mentioned was pyrolysis. So can we actually use this? Does it actually create a high surface area when it comes to hydrogen? Can we actually create a scenario which you're, you're capturing the energy to fuel the, the product, which is then creating biochar, which is a highly sought after commodity when it goes into there? So that's the other angles that we're looking at as well. So very much trying to take a science approach to, I guess, this massive issue. We would love for it to be phased out in the first place, but if it's not, how can we actually use the resource as a commodity? Shannon, I might start with uh, Haiti as well. The question, I love winds. So, and I know you've been in this space for a long time. Can you describe some of the, I guess, the winds that you've seen or in your team even within the plastic pollution space? Yeah, thanks, Fred. So, Tangaroa Blue has been around since 2004. So, we're in our 19th year. We have the Australian Marine Debris Initiative database, which has over 23 million data points in it from 35,000 cleanup events. So we've got a pretty solid database to be looking at. And some of the really exciting wins that we've seen is obviously around those big state level, which we wish were national, but they start at state level, changes like container deposit schemes, single-use plastic bans, those kind of things. So you can have a look at the data and, and I'll say particularly in New South Wales, 12 months prior to the container deposit scheme, there was a, a monitoring program that was set up in estuaries along New South Wales that's still going and has just received funding till 2027. And we can show you what the container deposit scheme did in relation to reducing beverage containers. And that's a win. And that data has now been used to say, well, what should we be looking at next in New South Wales? So we need measurable monitoring 
to be able to say, what should we be focusing on and where? And whatever we do, did it work? And so those kind of programs are really, really important. And so that's great. And we're great to see that container deposit schemes now are rolling out nationally, although it should have just been national at the start <laughs> to make it easier for the manufacturers. We've had a couple of other really good wins. Operation Clean Sweep, which was mentioned by Michelle before, is an industry program that works with the plastics industry and the logistics industry to reduce the loss of plastic feedstock from being released during manufacturing and transport. So we know that there's primary microplastics and secondary microplastics. So primary microplastics are made to be microplastics for some purpose, not products that are breaking up into smaller cases. And in Victoria, where we've been rolling that program out, we've seen a third reduction in the pollution ratings from industry. So I think the big thing here is we don't actually agree with the CSIRO report that said there's a 30% reduction in litter nationally because it wasn't looking at complete national data and there was only two points in time. Our database doesn't show that. Um, I'm sure, Graeme, if you go up to Cape York and to the Northern Territory, you wouldn't see a 30% reduction in litter up there. It doesn't look at those things. So we think that saying that it was a national reduction is actually quite misleading. What we've seen is that there are reductions where there's been specific targeted programs and the container deposit scheme is one of them. And those are the wins. And we can build on that. But overall, because of two things, the population keeps increasing and we keep using more stuff and every piece of pl uh, plastic that's in the environment will continue to fragment and break up into smaller pieces. So the numbers are just going to in increase. So we need to be really strategic. Thank you for the leading question, but we have one of our new <laughs> recycling programs um, called Rig Recycle that we have a bin out in the foyer, so have a look. And that's working with the recreational fishing industry to collect and recycle products that currently go to landfill like fishing line. And we're working with our Operation Clean Sweep plastic partners to make sure that during that process, there's no loss of microplastics in that process as well. So it's about enforcing best practice having things that are measurable and monitorable and making sure things are fit for purpose and not causing harm in the process of that just because we get a quick, easy win. Yeah, cool. Thank you. And look, we've mentioned the return burn scheme a few times, which is probably a good segue to James. It seems to be very widely embraced by the community, a lot of success. The data shows that it's actually working to reduce litter rates. What is the one thing you'd change to actually improve rates of recovery and obviously more reductions in litter in our environment? I might just start by adding a little bit more context yeah. to uh, Heidi's opening comments there. So just, just for context, uh, this time six years ago in New South Wales, by volume, 44% of the litter stream was made up of single-use drink containers, 44% of litter. A Premier's priority was set by the then Premier that around a target of 40% reduction in that litter stream, that part of the litter stream. The key initiative of the government was to introduce return and earn because container deposit schemes globally have been shown to be very, very successful in reducing rates of litter. Uh, by 2020, it had been demonstrated that the 40% target had been belted out of the park and there had already been a 52% reduction in drink container litter. And that's continued to improve year on year. And I think the earlier panel was talking about the fact that a PET bottle that is thrown into a park or something a long way from the ocean will probably ultimately end up there getting washed into a drain and the journey continues. So what a remarkable statistic. How's it been done? Well, it's been done through contained deposit scheme, which has led to a change in people's behaviours, basically. Uh, last week in New South Wales, Return and celebrated 9 billion containers being returned through the New South Wales network. That's 9,000 million drink containers, which might otherwise have ended up in litter or landfill. And because we're here talking about plastic, Roughly a third of those are, are plastic drink containers, predominantly PET with a proportion to of, of HDPE. 
So I think about 9,000 million containers being returned in a little over five years. We've seen the rate of recovery go from around 30, 31% to 70%. And I would add to that the COVID interruption to that has probably meant that that's, that's a bit below where I would like to have seen it. I think we probably lost around 5%, but we would have seen an absolutely remarkable increase in rates of return for these single-use drink containers. Very important to note too, just picking up on a lot of these questions around recycling, is that one of the beauties of these schemes that I think that has, has emerged more recently is that container deposit schemes generate a very, very clean stream of material, which was what was being touched on earlier. And we've seen a, a whole lot of investment now in Australia downstream driving what we call truly circular economies. So when you return something, return in New South Wales, it's not going to a park bench, which is an outcome. It's being turned back into food grade products in, in what we call a truly circular outcome or circular economy, high value application for recycling. So it's all, all very, very positive. I think that um, we realise that there's still a journey to go with those rates of return. Uh, there's a few levers available. There's a lot of views on different things that can be done. One thing that is demonstrable around the whole world is that the higher the deposit value on a, on a drink container, the more likely somebody is to return it. Simple human behavior. So I know it's a very complex space and there's a lot of pressure on cost of living and what have you, but what cost a drink container getting washed into the ocean and being breaking down into microplastics? Australia has a very, very low deposit value by global standards, 10 cents. We have very high levels of disposable income and, and our drink prices are very expensive. We've uh, had the great pleasure of hosting a lot of jurisdictions in our area uh, who are going to be introducing container deposit schemes in the near future, Singapore, New Zealand, a whole host of, of Pacific Island nations that are all looking at, at very, very high deposit values in order to drive that behaviour. But we're off to a super start. Uh, when you compare that five years ago, there really wasn't a scheme in operation and that there's been now over 9 billion containers returned. Uh, it's, it's a great start. And what I would just add is that that has equated to around 850,000 tonnes of material, which has all gone into end recycling markets, which otherwise may have ended up as, as litter and landfill. And happy to go into this in more detail, but all of that plastic that's being returned through Return and Earn uh, is being turned back into essentially plastic food containers. And that's a story that has changed very, very rapidly in the last two or three years. Thanks, James. Paula, if I can come to you, Mayor of Waverley Council. And council have an infinite list of responsibilities, everything from dog registration to library cards, but plastic pollution is one of those. So what are you guys doing at Waverley Council to reduce ocean plastic at the source, recycling, whatever? That is such a big question. I have to say, Waverley is only a pretty small council. We're only nine square kilometres. We have about 75,000 people. But most of those people are absolutely passionate about recycling and trying to mitigate the dreadful effects of plastic pollution. I think just in the last 12 months, we actually had 30 cleanups of litter just within Waverley. So that just gives you an indication of the, the level of commitment. One of the challenges that we actually have, though, is a lot of that pollution is actually not generated by our population. Because we're an ocean council, a lot of this stuff comes into the stormwater drains from elsewhere. So one of the big challenges in all of this is how do we educate to actually mitigate that? I'll come back to that in a minute. We're looking at not only education, but very practical things. Like we've got gross pollutant traps in at North Bondi, Bondi, Tamarama and at Bronte. And we're collecting something like about 20 tonnes of litter per year. 
And in terms of plastic pollution, the sorts of things that we're actually seeing, other than cigarette butts, and there are lots of those, we get those on the beaches as well as in the water. It's things like those little soy sachets, bane of my life. doesn't matter that they're like little fish, so they think they might be quite simpatico with the ocean. They're just dreadful and they're in terrible abundance. Those little chupa-chupa sticks everywhere, straws. The other thing that is a real bane, blue plastic bottle tops where they actually degrade and they look like little blue flecks in the sand itself. So basically, plastic pollution is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So we do those cleanups. We help sponsor when we target and partner with a lot of our community organizations. There have been some very local groups set up like Plastic Free Bronte. There's Tag 3 for the Sea, Responsible Runners. There's all of that going on. But we also undertake broader community education because Even though recycling's been around for a while, there's still a lot of confusion about what people can recycle. They don't necessarily know what the various symbols are on plastics. So the pollution within the recycling strain is a real issue. So we do do audits. It's pretty breathtaking that people are still putting single-use plastics and plastic bags in the container bins. So I think when we go to Fogo and co-mingling, which will be happening fairly soon, that will actually help mitigate some of that. But there's still confusion in people's minds. Well, what do I do with the really daggy pizza box that's now got congealed cheese on it? Where do I put that? So there's still quite a long way to go in terms of how we educate our community. We do have a schools program and the kids are pretty stunning. They are absolutely spot on. They're quite militant, I have to say, and they're dragging their parents with them. So that's really positive. I think the other thing from a council point of view, though, is how we can actually contribute to what happens once the material has been taken out of, you've recycled it, it's gone to the various recycling companies and providing they've actually got the capacity. And that's a big issue that we're finding now that we're getting ready for co-mingled recycling and FOGO. There is a lead time in how organizations like Veolia, who are absolutely spot on, but it's taking time for them to gear up. So, you know, what's the transition period? How can we contribute to the circular economy so that we're actually creating a demand? Now, we're already doing things like trialing Reconifelt, which is that ash belt which comprises of, of glass. And I think there's a bit of plastic in there, although I'm not sure I agree with plastics in the road surface because it does kick up microplastics. But what else can we do that creates demand and drives appropriate behavior change? And while it's all well and good to reward people to recycle because we're going to give them some money, we do need to actually start coming into those higher level intrinsic values. You know, it's good for the economy. It's good for the community. It's good for our family. It's good for the environment and in the longer term, good for our own personal health. So how do you transition from those external values that are driven by self-interest to those higher order things at the same time developing a demand via a circular economy mindset so that there is a product that can be produced and actually has a market for it. So there are lots of different things that we're actually doing. I think the other thing is that we're also looking holistically at things like the ocean through groups like the Sydney Coastal Councils Group, of which Waverley is a member, because the ocean doesn't start and stop at Waverley. So how do we all work collectively to actually get movement in these really important initiatives. Last but not least, Lottie. And Lottie, you're a superstar, but Brad is amazing. That's just because I named it after you. (laughs) Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> what is Brad? So Brad is Banish's recycling program. It stands for the Banish Recycling and Disposal Program, which helps Australian households recycle hard-to-recycle items like blister packs and beauty products and bottle top lids. Australians from all around the country will post them to us in a shoebox. We then have an amazing team of volunteers who hand sort every shoebox into the different waste streams and then we recycle it. So the whole aim is to keep all of these items from going to the wrong pit so you send them to our pit which is the right brad pit sorry (laughs) not brad dalrymple pit sorry (laughs) that's awesome hey look uh, that's been fantastic guys i'd like to actually open it up to the floor to the to you guys to ask any questions you might and i can see marina's hi there i clean up rubbish on the beach every single day i can't believe that it's gotten better because in my experience it definitely is not i have two questions one is about aluminum we always talk about single-use plastic but we rarely talk about aluminum i find at least three pieces of aluminum cans every single day so i just want someone to address the effects of aluminum in the ocean i can't believe it's not toxic as well and the other thing i've just learned that recreational fishing is catching up to industrial fishing in terms of the amount of fish that are being killed. And it's also got to be catching up in terms of the amount of waste that is left behind in the fishing industry, because that's another thing I find every single day is some kind of fishing gear. And there's no way you're going to get people that fish to, once their line gets tangled in the ocean, they just cut it loose. That is like, well, I don't have to tell any of you how detrimental that is. And if you watch Seaspiracy, you will definitely know that, you know, this is a really huge issue. I'll talk to the recreational. So GoSets in the last uh, probably 18 months has started working with the recreational sector on the ghost gear that's coming from wreck fishing. I did some work about five years ago and looking at the data that we had for Australia from beach cleanups and with some help from Denise and others at CSIRO and it showed that after the ghost gear issue up north in northern Australia, which is not really coming from Australia, it's from other countries, the second biggest contributor to ghost gear in the country is recreational fishing. So we 
started working with a group called Ozfish, which has been around for quite a while now. That is all about wreck fishers taking stewardship for their environment and doing all sorts of fish habitat restoration and cleanups and so on. We've been working with them for the last uh, year or so to develop up a national strategy for the country and to start looking at education, awareness, capacity, the supply chain in terms of the products that are being manufactured, as well as recycling, which again is Vina's hooked into this as well, to try and clean up exactly this issue that you talk about, um, because it is really bad. You know, I was talking to a wreck fisher the other day who was, you know, telling me her little four-year-old went for a walk during COVID and saw all this stuff. I mean, she hasn't even been to school and she knows that it's bad. She's like, mummy, we need to go back and get our bags and clean this up. We can't leave it here. It's becoming a bigger and bigger issue, but there are more and more wreck fishers that are recognizing that it's a problem and want to do something about it. And that's why we're working with Ozfish because they're that group that can corner the wreck fishing market in Australia that want to make change. And I guess just to, uh, you know, come back to the point about uh, metals. So in this case, we're talking about aluminium. You know, these metals are readily oxidized. So you effectively by kind of keeping it around in the environment, in our water, and of course, any degree of oxidation. It's not just aluminium, um, you know, metals oxidized generally, which means you've lost all of that inherent value that was there. So it makes a lot of sense when we talk about upfront at the source collection and recognizing that value so that it's never really getting into that situation where it ends up getting oxidized. So I guess part of that bigger system that I think the mayor was also talking about, Paula was mentioning around, you know, if you know upfront that there are opportunities, people are more than willing to participate in the process. But I guess once you do participate in the process, you need to know upfront where there are different kinds of plastics and metallic materials keep them so that they are nicely part of a supply chain and providing that into Australian supply chain means back to that holistic point, it contributes positively to our green economy. Uh, the more these materials come back into remanufacture. So we need to start to think in that circular economy way. I had another question from the back. Yeah. Ma'am Sellis uh, noted earlier, a lot of the plastic coming to the beaches here come from uh, different areas. And some of the research shows that a lot of the plastic comes from our regional neighbors uh, who don't necessarily have the same priority in terms of cleaning plastic or the technology to be able to deal with it. How do we act from our very privileged position in a wealthy country as leaders to be able to enact some of the technologies and developments we're able to create and bring them over to some of our neighbors or some of the places where plastic pollution is much more concentrated. We are really looking to care for our neighboring countries. And we do, as Australians, as we know, we are very generous by nature. So I think we need to now start to think in a much more tangible way. If part of this is, hey, let's come together and find a way where Australian aid money is providing technological solutions on the ground, I think that's a great way to set up some of these solutions. So we're not just kind of saying, well, here's some money and here's, you know, some problematic materials and off you go and deal with it because we know it takes a lot of time and effort to build solutions and to put them into practical deployment. So I think if we can find a way to take a lot of our technologies, that's why I think I was making that point earlier around affordable and accessible solutions are important at the right scale. So of course, when you do manufacture those products, you know, potentially looking at those being utilized in those regions as well. 
I guess, is again, thinking about circular economy in a regional setting would be a fantastic way to, I guess, make sure that these products are remanufactured as much as possible. I might just add to that because we're working in Indonesia and other countries in Asia working on the ghost gear issue. And taking to your point before, you really need to understand what the drivers are, why we have the problems we do around marine litter and ghost gear coming to Australia. And there are huge infrastructure challenges in the cities, in the remote and the sort of regional areas of these countries. They don't have waste management at all. The poverty levels are quite high. From our perspective, we've spent a lot of time scoping and trying to understand what are the drivers and where are the barriers and how do we try and work to overcome those barriers, work with the communities to find solutions that work for them, but will stop the nets coming to Australia. And to me, that's the key. It's it's really about understanding what are the priorities of communities in these other countries and helping address those priorities so that we get the outcomes that we're looking for as well. Because if we try and just go in and say, you got to stop all this rubbish coming to Australia, this is wrong, here's a billion dollars set up a waste management facility, it's not going to do it. You've got to really understand what the drivers are and why we have this issue and then work with collaborators. You know, we, we don't just work on our own. We work with a whole lot of people in Indonesia and other countries to find the solution that's going to be fit for purpose, the manufacturers, the recycling technology, whatever it might be, to be able to deal with the issue, which is my dream is to be able to stop ghost nets within a generation. If we could do that, that would be amazing, but we can't do it on our own. So you, you've really got to start at the at the grassroots and build up. Can I just add something else to that as well? There's a lot of work that actually happens on the ground within the council, the local government sector. There are peak bodies within local government, New South Wales and the Australian Local Government Association. There's opportunities also for councils to reach out to fellow councils in other countries and work at that level where we can actually help support not only through processes and technology, but Other things like shared experience about how do you go about educating your community? What's worked for us? And we are a multicultural society. So we do understand cultural difference and the values that are actually come with that and how you work with different languages and and different cultural groups. And I think that local government has a lot to contribute in this area. And I think more can be achieved through reaching out. And certainly that's something that we're keen to explore. I'll just add on that, that we're in a really exciting time at the moment because last year the United Nations actually passed a resolution to create a globally binding plastic treaty. And Australia has jumped on finally to the High Ambition Coalition, which means that the concept is based that it will be the same for every country, not a watered down version where every country can kind of make up its own rules. So it would apply to everybody. It's very ambitious because they want it kind of designed by the end of 2024, which is not a lot of time when you try and get all the countries on board to agree with something, let alone something as complex as plastic pollution. But I think that it shows that everybody sees the urgency in doing something, and that's really exciting. I think that all the players, all the stakeholders, local government, state government, federal government, the NGO sector, manufacturers, industry, all has to be on board to actually all agree on the goal. And then we have a really good opportunity. If we're not, we lose this opportunity. And then I think it would be very, very distressing because now's the time. If this process doesn't work, well, maybe we're just not ready to do that because we're too busy about buying our cheap, convenient, throwaway lifestyle. So it's it's really a question about where we are as a society, whether we agree that this is a problem or not. And if we get it right, well, it dresses Indonesia. It's not up to us to say what Indonesia should be doing. Like we've got our own problems here. 
we don't have the best marine debris policy or plastic pollution policy in the world. We have a national plastics plan, which is a whole bunch of ideas that aren't coordinated or connected in any way and have no responsibility or funding. That's what we're meant to be doing at an Australian level. So I don't think that we should be pointing the finger at anybody else, but we have an opportunity through the UN to actually have a global legally binding structure now. Tom from Seabin, I've got a question for you, James. Love your work. Thanks for doing it. So I'm really interested in if you guys, oh, I want to hear a bit about your growth plan, but I'm really interested if you have any data on where the bottle, the PET donations are coming from. Because one of the best things I've seen come out of the program is people going around to household bins and taking this product of value and then donating it through return and earn. I put out my yellow bin this morning and I opened the lid and went to put it out on the street and didn't even put it out. And I live in an apartment building of four households. And I know it's because we have people that go up and down our street on rubbish day and grab these items of value and put them in return and earn. So I'm really interested to hear what your growth plan is, how much more you're expecting to get in the future. And if you think this can be a way of eradicating the yellow bins, which I pay for as a homeowner, but I'm not really using. There's a couple of things you've touched on there. So the first part of the answer is that uh, New South Wales, just the state of New South Wales consumes 3.6 billion drink containers per year. Again, at that 70-ish percent mark, that still leaves a, a billion drink containers that are either going into people's red bins or they're finding their way into litter or landfill somehow. So there's definitely work to be done there. In our role as network operator, we're focused on forever expanding the network to make it very convenient to further people's education. Because I think picking up the point that you made before, uh, the early adopters are driven by the 10 cents, right? So in, in terms of your neighbors with the yellow bin. And it's funny how often that story gets told to me because we know that 80% of adults in New South Wales have, have used the scheme. So, but it's, it's remarkable how often uh, there's the reference made to the people that I like to call the bin professionals and good on them. I mean, but it comes back to this point about someone else doesn't value that 10 cents. Now, what we're seeing is that increasingly we're, we're switching on people's engagement with the scheme through messages such as, well, if the 10 cents doesn't matter to you, it might certainly matter to somebody else. And as a great example, which really struck me earlier in the week, myself and a number of colleagues were up in Port Macquarie for a new site launch and visited the Port Macquarie Koala Hospital and seeing these lovely little koalas. And they said, if you try and touch them, they'll tear your head off because everyone wants to give them a cuddle. But that's another story. And they're relying on the tune of a couple of thousand dollars of donations every year. And it's one of these many stories of people collecting and, and returning those funds. So in terms of as network operator, we're very focused on that piece around improving people's access, the convenience of the scheme with more collection points moving out. We see that that education and the profile piece being very important. I think, for instance, when I hear some of the questions coming out of the audience, there's the bad news stories about recycling get so much more airtime than the good news stories about recycling. And I've got some amazingly good news stories about recycling to tell and the stories that have changed in the last couple of years. So there's a lot of things to be done. Uh, every day, myself and the team look at it and say there's a there's a billion containers there that we'd love to see in the scheme. I think that the yellow bins, and, and it's the right answer, perform a very important purpose in terms of people's other types of commodity that are at home that need to be recycled that are not part of a deposit scheme. So I would imagine that, I can't speak for government, but the yellow bins and, and that infrastructure there for the wider recycling market is certainly not going anywhere in the near future and, and nor should it. We see in container deposit schemes around the world where we talk about return to retail schemes with very high deposit values, 
in Norway, in Sweden, in a lot of those Western European jurisdictions, you're getting rates of return north of 95, 97%, which basically means it's being consumed, it's being returned, it's being recycled. And, and I think that's our ultimate ambition uh, here in New South Wales also for all, all drink containers. And, and last but not least, there's obviously uh, opportunity to expand the scheme. The second question I always get asked after, now it's actually the first question is always, why aren't wine bottles in the scheme? And who, who's asked that question in the room? Pretty much everyone. So that comes back to this issue around the fact that the scheme was designed around litter reduction and people generally consume wine and spirit bottles at their home and it finds their way into the yellow bin. All across CDS jurisdictions in Australia, there's now a consultation period opening because all state governments have realised how effective container deposit schemes are, not just in terms of reducing litter, but in terms of delivering a very clean stream of high-value commodity, which can then be put to reuse in those end recycling markets. So the next step is going to be the expansion of, of wine and spirit bottles into container deposit schemes across Australia. I know that's glass, but glass is also inherently recyclable, and I think that'll be a, a very good step in the right direction. Cool. Thank you. Uh, could I draw a parallel if I can? Because you talked about the amount of um, bottles or the amount of containers in New South Wales. And I think if we look again back to you know cigarette butts, what's not just littered, but what's then landfilled as well? If we've got somewhere around about 17.8 billion consumed, it either ends up in one stream or the other. The South Australian Greens last month actually tabled a bill and gave second reading about introducing a recycling scheme for cigarette butts at the cost of tobacco. It's not the ultimate model but it's certainly a much better model than it exists today. And I think there's enough success of schemes like Return and Earn where we actually see if there's a value in that or if someone can pay for the infrastructure around that, that actually entirely proves that it is a viable stream, that we just need to work out and actually say whether or not there is a resource recovery with that. There's no point just collecting it, rewarding someone and just ending up in landfill. I just also wanted to add on that. I think it's about reframing what recycling is and that recycling is a commodity. And as you just mentioned, it is part of what you pay for in your rates. But I think the average Australian doesn't see it that way. They see it as this inherent right. They have the right to be able to recycle. So I think it's about reframing the fact that the whole crumbling of the or the temporary pause of the red cycle scheme has come from kind of an oversupply but not that demand at the end for that resource and that material. And I think we need to look at it like that. Consumers can want to be able to recycle wine bottles. They can want to recycle things. But if nobody wants to buy that material, it doesn't work. And I think that's what it comes down to is that recycling is an option, but it is not the solution. Our solution is reducing our consumption. And I think that's not really something that's being spoken about enough is the fact that litter is one thing and putting it in the right place is great, but not consuming is what we should be also focusing on. I'd just like to add a, yeah, completely agree with that too. Um, so in full support of the key part being the reduction in consumption, but just talking about value. In recent years, in PET is, is a globally traded product, like your metals and, and like all other types of globally traded products. Very, very interesting phenomenon emerged a couple of years back where the price of what's called RPET or recycled PET flipped and became more expensive on global markets than virgin PET. And that was consumer driven. And the packaging companies woke up and said, well, hold on a minute. We, we need to be putting our product into recycled, in using recycled PET for our products because that's what our consumers want. And all the people in the markets went, wow, the price of RPET has just flipped and become more, more valuable than virgin PET. What a remarkable phenomenon that is. And I think um, going back to, we talked about extended producer responsibility in the design of your packaging. I mean, we go into the supermarkets and it, you know, I can bore anyone about drink containers, trust me, but the range and the colour, there's, there's jurisdictions around the world that have banned 
coloured PET, Japan, Korea, what have you, the, the bright greens, they're very difficult to recycle. It's the clear stuff that's the most valuable and the most recyclable too. So that, that conversation also needs to go into the stuff that we're using to package things. We've heard so much about the soft plastics and the big issues that are, that are presented there, but it's all part of the same conversation. Yeah, on the topic of consumers, like Banish, for example, Lottie, the online marketplace that you found, and I get all my amazing hair products and deodorants, as you know, it's all plastic-free, vegan, uh, palm oil-free. I'd like to see that just explode and you become a gazillionaire. How does that happen though? And how do we essentially make Banish integrated into, or the principles of Banish integrated into our coals and woolies? I think it's consumers. I'm mm. a big believer in consumers and what you demand and mm. what you ask for. The big guys are going to be listening and they're going to respond to. It's as simple as kind of, yes, we there might not be any plastic bags at the checkout, but there's still plastic bags in those fruit and veg sections. So can we stop using those? Can we be, when you are at, at your supermarket, using your dollar to vote? for what you want, buying the more expensive loose carrots than the ones that are in a one kilo plastic bag, which I don't know how they end up being cheaper. But it's about doing all of these things. And I think it adds to that kind of that demand and that increase in people kind of going, okay, well, let's step away from palm oil. Let's step away from this material that at the moment is so readily accessible. It's cheap. It does all of these great things. But when you actually look at the detrimental environmental impact, but a brand has to be willing to front that cost and they won't front that cost unless there's a consumer that's willing to purchase that. And often with sustainable products, things are going to cost more if they are made by somebody, if they are made in a, by somebody who's being paid a fair wage. And I think it comes down to the consumers being able to accept that and being the ones that are voting. And I think it's really difficult for them because people at the moment are pinched for money. They want something that is affordable and accessible. So it's kind of this tricky thing, like should they be the ones that have to bear the brunt of this cost? Or should it be that the consumers have this access to, I don't know, materials that are better for the planet that are then able to be cheaper and more affordable. So that's what we're trying to do at Banish is make it accessible for people and make it so easy. The thing is it needs to be so easy that you don't need to go searching for things. You don't need your sustainable swap to be kind of like, oh, I don't know what it's going to be. You need to know exactly what it's going to be and how easy it is. It's the same with recycling in your curbside bin. It needs to be so easy that you walk up to that bin and you don't even think twice about it. And that's why return and earn is great because it's kind of like, okay, we only accept a couple of things, so just pop it in here. But when it gets to your curbside recycling bit at home, it's pretty much like a lucky dip. You're like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. And you might be in the Waverley Council area and it's different. You've got a blue bin. You might be in Randwick and you don't have a blue bin. You might be in Victoria and you've got a purple bin. Like, it's so difficult. So as a as someone who's trying to educate people in a national scale, it makes my job incredibly difficult and really hard because consumers don't know where to go for credible information. They can look to their councils, but new products are hitting the shelves every single day and the councils haven't even had a chance to update their website yet on what's happening with these. And we're starting to see the ARL jump on board and start being rolled out more and more. But things like I'd argue as well with, with we've got talking about like a mixed material item is Tetra Packs. Like if you look at Tetra Packs and how few council areas can actually recycle them, but how many people love a good oat milk, it's just another thing that I think we don't really think about. I'm Catherine and I volunteer with uh, Lottie at Brad. My question is though for James and it's about the containers and once they've been recycled, 
are consumers able to know when they're looking at the shelf which products have been recycled, like drink bottles, for example? Is it very obvious to them what percent is recycled material and is there a cost incentive involved so that consumers would want to choose the recycled product over the virgin plastic product? Really good question. What what you're increasingly seeing is if, if you use mineral water bottles as an example, you'll, you'll quite often see this this bottle is made with 100% recycled PET. And you're seeing a lot of that on television now from some of the leading beverage manufacturers. Uh, given the recent investment in Australia in the domestic capacity to reprocess PET, I think you're going to start to see this bottle is made with 100% recycled Australian PET. And just to sort of back up that story, and because we're here to, I believe, tell the really good news stories, like not many people may be aware, but in, in Albury, uh, a, a facility commenced operation last year, the largest in Australia, Circular Plastics. It's a joint venture between a number of beverage companies and also involves CleanAway as a, as a um, JV partner. That kicked off last year. That takes the equivalent of a billion 600 mil PET bottles a year, turns it back into food grade pellets or flakes. And we uh, understand that that's finding its way onto the shelf in six or eight weeks back as a bottle. So I think you'll see the the labelling there increasingly demonstrate that because the consumers are after it and the infrastructure in Australia is catching up. So I think you'll increasingly see this is also Australian, which people are probably going to be pretty glad to see also. Um, my question is about consumer behaviour and Lottie, you mentioned how important that is and we had a question about the fishing industry and I've seen like the bin outside for recycling and tackle bins around Queensland as well. So I'm just wondering what are some um, local solutions that are being done for cons- like to impact um, how consumers are consuming plastic? I think there's a significant role for local councils and that's something that we have been doing at Waverley Council and we're targeting a whole range of different um, sectors within that. I mentioned our young people our children and young people, they are absolutely key. So we actually do go into schools and there is a, a program where we now have these young people who are becoming champions of the message. The reality is you have to keep educating. You cannot stop. And while we talk about the technology and the need to reduce consumption, the reality is we have population growth. And certainly at Waverley Council, we keep on being told by the state government, increase your housing targets because you have to have more people in your area. And not everyone, sorry guys, it's a fact. And you know my position on overdevelopment, but you know, we get overridden. And there are a lot of people who do come into the area who may not be aware. So education is something that we have to keep on doing and also looking at how we make recycling easier and more convenient. And I think this is where the co-mingling way of recycling is going to help because a lot of people still get very confused about what the packaging means, what those different symbols mean. So the easier you can make it, the easier it will be to change that behaviour. Certainly, we also have information packs, we've got flyers, there are uh, festivals, um, there's all sorts of stuff that we actually do at a local government area, which has to continue. Uh, and I think it's really quite effective. And then we start the word of mouth. But you do need those champions, you do need to have the experts, but you also have to be able to demonstrate why people need to recycle, because there is a product at the end that can be used is that circular economy. And that's something that we're very committed to at Waverley Council. 
think teaching kids at school would be a great place to start as well. I mean, oh. as part of the science um, design tech curriculum, I mean, that's also an important sort of focus. You really have to start at that point where this, I mean, kids love technology. Kids are into all of that. So I'm sure when we connect it back to learning about recycling, so they take that responsibility. And I would assume if schools set up their own localized programs, that would be a great way. Learning by doing I guess yeah. this way. Bina, that's absolutely true. I mean, I often will speak at schools and I'm speaking to seven-year-olds and they know so much. So, you know, the future is in good hands, but it's what you do in the meantime. I'd also say from sorry, consumer perspective, um, there are some really great resources that are coming out aside from Banish. There is things like the Recycling Near You website, which is by Planet Arc, which will connect you and geolocate you. Also, Recycle Mate, the app is another really good one. So, we're, because we are seeing so many niche recyclers come out. We're seeing, I found one yesterday, which is called Game on Recycling, all about recycling sporting equipment, ski boots, as well as kind of footballs and things like that. And what I love about that scheme is their first point of call is reuse, and then their second is going to be recycling. So I think it's about giving these small kind of, I don't know, schemes a platform to connect with people because we can very much focus on the fact that people in this LGA can go to their local, I don't know, their local local Westfield and they can donate their return and earn. They could go to the pharmacy and donate blister packs. They could go here. They could do all of these different things. But the everyday consumer who lives in a rural and remote community probably might only have access to a yellow bin or won't have access at all. So I think it's also about increasing that. Imagine if there was one shop in every shopping centre where you could drop off all re- non, you know, hard to recycle items. Coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> we might have quite time for one more question before lunch. Kimberly Bolton from yes. Carapac. Yes. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for all your insights. But I really wanted to touch on what you were saying, Lottie. Like, I think we need practical, easy, applicable and understandable throwaway techniques for consumers because I think genuinely people want to do the right thing but there's so many different products out there but what I really want to touch on is there are a lot of products that are greenwashing mm. so even in amongst that there's just an array on top of that there are a lot of products that are purposely misleading people in their labeling one that really drives me crazy and actually gives me nightmares at night is oxo-degradable plastic which is just Normal petrol chemicals that have these extra chemicals that make it biodegrade into microplastics quicker. And I honestly think it should be completely illegal and whatnot. But, and those are marketed as degradable, biodegradable to consumers. So they think they're doing the right thing, but they can't. And I know I struggle with that a lot with Carapac and the work I'm doing, but I'd just love to hear what you, Lottie, and Paula, from your side on the the council government sort of side, any insights other than, well, I know education is a big part of that, but how can we tackle this big greenwashing problem? Yeah, it's a beast. But I think we've started to see the ACCC really step in and start actually making some really big changes and coming down on people and businesses who are misleading consumers. So I think that's probably the most exciting thing to see when you look at the kind of different standards and how quickly everything is changing in this industry. I don't 
really see that something like that will be coming out anytime soon. So it is leaving the consumer in this kind of awkward position of not knowing what to do. And it often leads to that kind of like decision paralysis where they kind of go, I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm going to be making this right decision or not. Or they make a decision, they go home and then they find out that it was the wrong decision. And it almost kind of undoes all of this kind of good and this amazing feeling that they were doing the right thing. So I think the short answer would be that at the moment, it looks like the ACCC is the probably going to be the solution for this right now. But I think we just have to keep on educating people and trying to teach them about being more clued on. It's kind of like what we used to do with the back of nutrition labels. We used to look at that and kind of back in the day, it was this big thing like, oh my gosh, skim milk isn't actually as good as we thought it was. There's sugar in it. Now we're starting to do that with products and the environmental standards. So I would encourage people who are getting started to kind of pick one or two things like palm oil could be the thing that you're like, I never want to use palm oil again, or you go for packaging. I think that to try and find the perfect product in a supermarket, you'll probably be leaving empty-handed. Good point on the greenwashing. And it's really hard for consumers. And a lot of people here have said, we want to make recycling easy and convenient. So we need to go back to the packaging. When you can buy the same product in a supermarket with 25 different variations of packaging, that's what makes it hard. So we need to be making sure that manufacturers and importers are all using the same type of material within certain types of packaging because then it makes it easier for consumers. We know how to recycle. And on the greenwashing, one of the emerging issues is companies claiming to be making products out of ocean plastic. Now, that is absolutely not chemically feasible to do that. You can't go and grab a whole heap of um, plastic from the ocean and 100% make a product out of that. So um, we've done a ACCC complaint at the end of last year and there's a video on our YouTube channel that talks about how to do an ACCC complaint because they have made that a priority for this year to call out unsubstantiated greenwashing claims. And we would say that products claiming to be made out of 100% or even close to that ocean plastic is complete greenwash and it needs to be called out. So if it sounds too good to be true, it is. Do your homework, do your due diligence before you part with your dollars. Just like I thank my amazing panellists, Dina, Anissa, Shannon, Roddy. Well done, guys. That's it, guys. Hope you enjoyed part two of four from the Ocean Plastic Action Forum. Our next episode will feature part three of the forum. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.